Samuel in chapter 20. 2 Samuel 20. And I think I need to back up a little to uh, pick up the context. I'm only looking at actually at verse 13, but we need to set the context a little. So I'm going to go back to uh, verse 10 and read through verse 13. And I've asked uh, Richard Marsh if he would pray God's blessing on the declaration of his word. Second Samuel at the 10th verse. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he smote him there within the body and shed out his bowels to the ground and struck him not again and he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued after Sheba, the son of Bichri. And there stood by him one of Joab's young men and said, He that favoreth Joab, and he that is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the midst of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and cast a garment over him when he saw that everyone that came by him stood still. When he was removed out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the place you've given us to come worship. And I thank you for the place we live that we are able to freely worship you without fear of persecution. I thank you for your word and that we are able to come here today, but that we might not just hear it, but we will understand it and that we will apply it to our lives. Lord, we know that we do not deserve anything in this world, but we are graciously given all the things. And I thank you for Mr. Farmer as he delivers your word and that you'll give him wisdom and guidance. Thank you and praise you for everything you do. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we dealt last week with this uh, butchery, this terrible behavior of Joab regarding Amasa. And I just want to look at the 13th verse where we read and have read, when he was removed out of the highway, that is Amasa, of course, all the people went on after Joab to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. We have witnessed the butchery of Joab against Amasa. This morning in our reading, we, we now see Joab simply going off as though no such wickedness had taken place. He's just going on his way, pursuing his initial design. He's <clears throat> his motto, perhaps his very own banner, seems to emblazon pragmatism. Whatever it takes to get it done, do it. Whatever works, do it. The first one to the top of the hill wins the game. It's not how you play the game, it's whether you win or lose. Seems to be Joab's mantra, do what it takes. 
be at the top. I'm sure this is why we have heard as we've read through the scriptures, in particular in the books of Samuel, we've heard David say again and again, uttering those words about the sons of his sister, the sons of Asahel, Abishai, and Joab, uttering those words, these sons of Zeruiah be too hard for me. His sister Zeruiah had these three sons. They were too hard for David. And we've seen again and again this attitude on their part and how it often even cowered David. They were too hard for him. Joab was a perennial, an ongoing problem for David. But he was also something of an enigma, something of a puzzle for David. And something of a puzzle for us. Being intensely loyal to David. There's no question about that. As we read his behavior, he was intensely loyal to David. Defeating the king's son, Absalom. When almost the entire kingdom went after Absalom, he stayed with David. He and his men stayed with David. They gathered more men. But it was through Joab that Absalom was defeated through this intense loyalty that he had for David. He defeated his son Absalom, but he also killed David's son Absalom against the express wishes, against the express directions of the king. He slew Absalom. He seems to care intensely about David, his king. He seems to be showing deep care for the interests of David. All through the narratives, he seems to have that loyalty, that deep interest, that intensity of feeling for David. But I have to add, yet, he was even more loyal and jealous for his own desires, for his own needs. Does this perhaps place him among those of whom Christ has spoken in Matthew 7, 21, those frightening words, those dynamic words when he said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by thy name? And by thy name cast out demons. And by thy name do many mighty works. Does this not seem to sketch or draw us a picture of somebody like Joab? Are these folk of whom Christ has spoken in Matthew 7, are they not... We could say spiritual kinfolk of someone just like Joab. The enigma that is Joab is a puzzle with some pieces that don't seem to fit well. Again, Joab is clearly loyal to his uncle, David. And he gives him much in the way of lip service. And he has surely spoken in favor of David, in favor of his name, 
this man that cried out for followers, cried out that whoever is for David is for Joab. Whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. It was almost as though they were one and the same. So intense was his loyalty to David. He's done many things in his name. He says, he says to David, in effect, Lord, Lord, did I not stand up for thee? Speaking by thy name, in thy name, did I not cast out many demons, many troubles, many difficulties that you had under that letterhead of David's note that was delivered to Joab by none other than Uriah, the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, even pronouncing Uriah's death through the instrumentality of Joab. Did Joab not do that? Did he not do what David directed him to do in order to cast out these demons, if we can put it that way? Did he not do many mighty works? Many mighty works in the name of David. Consider how that he defeated Israel's enemies again and again, in particular the Ammonites. But he wouldn't take it to his name. If you look at, at 2 Samuel 12, you see how this is so. And it seems like that Joab is a humble person concerned only about David's name, only about David's success. He says in 2 Samuel 12, at verse 26, he speaks of this. We're told, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, yea, I have taken the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest I take the city and it be called after my name. He had them surrounded. He had them at his will. There was only, the only thing left to do was just to go in the city and take it. But he didn't want to do it, that it would be called, might be called by his name. So he summoned David to come and to finish the job, to take the city, that it would be called after his name. He seems, he seems to be very loyal. And yet we see again and again evidence that his primary loyalty is to himself. Isn't that the nature of man? By nature, isn't that the nature of all the sons and daughters of Adam? Apart from the grace of God, we can almost hear Joab reciting Henley's Invictus, a poem and declaring, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Does that not well describe the attitude of a person like Joab. Does that not give us a picture of Joab himself? David was, in Joab's eyes, only a titular head over Israel, king in name only, in Joab's eyes. 
But he was not in Joab's heart, his king. Because Joab was king over himself and behaved accordingly. Regardless of what his actions may have been, his heart said to David, you are not the boss over me. Again and again, it's evidenced by his behavior. And here in the slaying of Amasa, the man that David, the general that David has set over his troops, Joab wickedly kills him, murders him, and then just merrily goes on his way. To do what? To deal a death blow to Sheba, the son of Bichri, for his king, David. But he made certain that before he did anything, he was established once again as the general of the armies of Israel. It may be said that he called him Lord, Lord, but he did not comply with David's will if it countered his own will. David was not his master. Joab was the master of his own fate. He was the captain of his own soul. He was the boss. There is such a thing as acknowledging the king's sovereignty and disregarding his will. And it's pictured here for us in the relationship between David and Joab. Such folk will have no place in the kingdom at the last, is what Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 is saying. And Joab was no exception to this rule. There's no such, there is a, such a thing as acknowledging the king's sovereignty and disregarding his will. And there will ultimately be no place in the kingdom for such an individual. True believers, by the grace of God, have been made willing in the day of his power, by the grace of God, to come to Jesus as Lord, as their Lord, as well as their Savior. Not only Savior, but Lord and Savior. Many times, frequent occasions of this being demonstrated that he is Lord and Savior. He is both Lord and Savior. But many think they can have Jesus Christ as their Savior without behaving toward him as though he were their Lord. They think they can take him as one without taking him as both. They've been made willing in the day of his power to come to Jesus. As, as their savior. And they shall, if they've been made willing in the day of God's power to come to Jesus as Lord, they will continue to be made willing to follow him. The life is important. The life of the believer is important. There's a whole multitude of individuals that have been supposedly brought to Christ, supposedly saved, who have never, have never lived their lives under Christ, never lived their lives under Christ as Lord. Only been, they've only been made happy, 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 thinking that they have him as Savior, that they don't have to go to hell. 
They don't have to pay for their sins. Joab gambled and won. He gambled when he killed Amasa, but he won. David can hardly have welcomed him with open arms, and yet he had saved the kingdom when he destroyed Sheba, the son of victory. Joab is both intensely loyal and completely uncontrollable. He has a will of his own. He does not raise the standard of revolt against, Sheba, or against David like Sheba did. Nor does he seek David's throne like Absalom did. Joab seems faithful to David. He does not try to be king himself. And yet he acts as his own king. He's extremely loyal to David, but essentially unsubmissive to David. I think we probably have all met professing Christians of whom it would have to be spoken that they're happy to be saved. They're happy to be saved from hell. They're happy to be saved from that fire. But they're essentially unsubmissive to Christ as Lord. If we transported Joab to our own times, would he be such a one as is called a carnal Christian? Have you heard that term? It's been around for quite a number of years, a carnal Christian. One writer supporting the carnal Christian theory, which in our day and more recently in the last two or three decades has morphed into the title, the anti-lordship faction. Anti-lordship. Those folks' arguments and their behavior are the same, almost identical. And practically speaking, they are identical to those who raised the carnal Christian theory five, six decades ago, if not farther back. One writer supporting the carnal Christian theory calls them, quote, unbelieving Christians. Unbelieving Christians. Is that not an oxymoron? You know what an oxymoron is, children? You may be wondering, is that, a, is that an ox that behaves like a moron? Or is that a moron that looks like an ox? Actually, an oxymoron is something that is a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in and of itself, like a miniature giant is a contradiction in terms, or a noisy silence is a contradiction in terms. Joab was something of an oxymoron. A carnal Christian or an unbelieving Christian surely is an oxymoron. This writer went on to say, even if a believer, for all practical purposes, becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. You have to read stuff like that to believe anybody would say it. He said also, and last, believers who lose or abandon their faith will retain their salvation. For God remains faithful. You can't make this stuff up. 
Somebody's actually put it in print. And it's still, it's still for sale on Amazon. And this man has hundreds of thousands of followers. Christ will not deny an unbelieving Christian his or her salvation because to do so would be to deny himself. What? They're denying him. Disclaiming him as their Lord. They won't have him like those that Christ spoke of in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, that parable that Jesus recounts. In Matthew 25, at verse 14. Jesus says, for it is as when a man going into another country called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another, <coughs> to another two talents, to another one, to each according to his several ability. And he went on his journey. Straightway he that had received the five talents went and traded with them and made other five talents. In like manner he also that received the two gained other two. But he that received the one went away and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now after a long time the Lord of those servants cometh and maketh a reckoning with them. And he that received the five talents came and brought other five talents saying, Lord, Lord, Thou deliverest unto me five talents. Lo, I have gained other five talents. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Thou hast been faithful. Over a few things I will set thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Lo, I have gained other two talents. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will set thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou didst not sow. And gathering where thou didst not scatter. And I was afraid and went away and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, thou hast thine own. But his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I did not scatter. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the bankers. And at my coming I should have received back mine own with interest. Take ye away therefore the talent from him and give it unto him that hath the ten. For unto every one that hath shall be given and he that he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not, even that which he hath shall be taken away. And cast ye out the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. Cast him into the outer darkness. The one that didn't want to serve me as his Lord, cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth.
this man says the final verse of this parable is so severe cast him into the outer darkness that's so severe that many commentators assume it is a description of hell many commentators assume that outer darkness is a description of hell this man is critical of those people that assume it's a description of hell and he says it is not Where is this place represented by the outer darkness in Jesus' parable? He goes on. To be in, listen to this. To be in the outer darkness is to be in the kingdom of God, but outside the circle of men and women whose faithfulness on this earth earned them a special rank or position of authority. Is this another form of second blessing teaching? Is this another form of two kinds of Christians? Well, of course it is. They have the spiritual Christian and the carnal Christian. And they're both going to heaven in their teaching. In their teaching. Terrible and wicked such teaching. You and I are not saved, he says, because we have enduring faith. And he brings it right out on display for us. We are saved because at a moment in time we express faith in our Lord. Go check that marker that you put behind the garage when you were saved. When you asked Jesus to come into your heart and you wrote the date on that and put it into the ground behind the garage. All you have to do is go behind the garage and look at that mark you put in there if you have any wavering in your assurance and be recalling that day that you asked Jesus to come into your heart and then you'll be assured that you truly are saved. Oh no. It is possible to be a child of God and never a disciple of Christ, he says. We can live the Christian life with the assurance of heaven as our ultimate destiny but miss the process of maturing as a disciple. Doesn't Paul say in Romans 8 that we are being, we have been predestined to be saved, but we are predestined to be saved, to be conformed unto the image of his son. And what God has ordained, what God has predestined is going to happen. And all those who are true believers will, quote unquote, mature as disciples. They will be grown in grace and in the knowledge of their Lord and Savior. They will be being conformed unto him. We read in Peter's first sermon, For David ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand uh, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Let all the house of Israel know therefore assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. You can't have one without the other. These advocates 
of the carnal Christian theory who today say a man can have Jesus Christ as Savior without embracing him as Lord are bringing forth, in Paul's language to the Galatians, they're bringing forth another gospel. That is no gospel. It's a deception. This teaching is a link in the chain of easy believism. We're probably all familiar with that of which I speak, living, growing up, many of you. Having lived here a long time, many of us. This is referred to often as the Greenville, that is, as the buckle of the Bible belt. And we have these sorts of things going on next door to us, almost. This teaching is a link in the chain of easy believism. This form of so-called evangelism that has begun with a man-made revival. Oh, we're going to have a revival next month. We're just going to put up a tent, or we're going to do this or that, and we're going to have, we're going to have a revival. We're going to bring about revival. Y'all come. And then individuals that are induced in one way or another through the preacher up there on the stage to come down the aisle. Come down the aisle if you're a sinner. Years ago, shortly after I had been truly converted, I was at another church and they were having a special meetings, they called them. But this is what it turned out to be. And at the end of a message that wasn't really even a gospel message in itself, at the end he started calling for people to come down the aisle. Sinners that need Jesus to come down the aisle and accept Jesus. There'll be somebody up here to help you, they say, to lead you, to guide you, how that you can do this, how that you can ask Jesus to come into your heart. We have people here. We have folks here that will show you how you can receive Christ. And great numbers return to their homes, imagining that they have become Christians. I remember reading about such an event, and there are many and have been many over the years, in particular since the 50s and beyond. But it goes all the way back to Charles Finney 150 years ago. But I read about a one of these crusades, I believe it was Houston, but it was a city in Texas, perhaps Dallas. And they said that 6,000, 6,000 were saved. Well, don't you know that if 6,000 people were saved in Dallas, that we would hear about it? Don't you know that if 6,000 were truly saved in Detroit, that we would hear about it? The reason we don't hear about it is because they just go to their homes and there's been no change. I'm not denying that some individual, in spite of that methodology made, have been redeemed by God through generating grace. But it's not because of that methodology, it's in spite of it. And after a while, when there's no fruit to be seen, 
from these thousands that go forward, an explanation is needful. They need to come up with an explanation for this. Why has no one heard about it? Why are, there, are they living no differently? Why is there no change? That's where the carnal Christian theory comes in. That's where they came up with this carnal Christian theory. Yes, they're taking it from 1 Corinthians 3. Are you not carnal? Are you not yet carnal? Well, guess what? We're all, we all still have carnality in us. We all sin. But we don't live a life of sin any longer by the grace of God. We don't make it our habit. We don't continue to be happy in sin as we once were. But they come up with this carnal Christian theory. Say, well, those folk must be some of those carnal Christians. It's the only explanation because they were saved because I was right there and I saw them go down the aisle. I was right up front and I heard him ask Jesus to come into his heart. They returned to the world which they had never really left and resumed their lives as it was before. And we have a lovely plan for them also to get them to be able to go to heaven. It's called the rapture. We've got this wonderful plan. The secret rapture of the church. I remember a co-worker having a chart. These folks love charts. He had a chart. And I wouldn't have believed that if I hadn't seen it. But it shows the spiritual Christian in this chart and his line is going gradually up through bumps and, and difficulties and struggles. But he's going up. He's going up toward heaven. This carnal Christian is just staying right down here on the bottom line. Just going on. And guess what? The rapture! And up he goes to heaven. It's hard to believe that anybody would be teaching such a thing. But it's alive today. And I believe that Joab gives us a picture of that kind of attitude. Suddenly the rapture takes place and this individual is swooped up into heaven. No cross, no loss. Maybe some special gifts or something. I'll give those up. One wrote very candidly, to the carnal mind, it makes sense to want Jesus as Savior and Satan as Lord. To the carnal mind, that makes sense. The carnal Christian doctrine or anti-lordship teaching of eternal security, as they favor calling it, is a vastly different doctrine than the biblical doctrine of the preservation and perseverance of the saints. We see that in Romans 7, evidenced by Paul. That which I would do, I do not. That which I would not do, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall save me? Jesus Christ shall save me. And he's working, and he's striving, and he's fighting war. He's in a war against sin. He's not happily living in it. And throwing in the towel in any, as far as any fight with sin. 
he's one of these that it's easier to serve just Jesus as Savior and Satan as Lord. Why make a big deal out of it? Why fight? Why get all beat up? The true saint will persevere to the end because the Lord will preserve him to the end. He's promised and he will. Yes, the true saint's going through many difficulties, struggles, and as even David gives us a, a sad and sorry illustration of his terrible sin, adultery and murder, the Lord sustained him, the Lord forgave him, the Lord sanctified him, the Lord brought him back to himself. And yes, he also chastised him. The true saint will persevere by God's grace. The true saint will be preserved by the Lord. He will be made willing in the day of the same power that brought him to Christ in the first place. He will be made willing to persevere to the end, fighting against sin. We read in Matthew again in the first chapter, the angel telling Joseph, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For it is he that shall save his people from their sins. From their sins, not in their sins. That's salvation. Give attention to what Christ himself has said in John 15. You remember, you remember these words, the sense of them, the essence of them. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh it away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he cleanseth it. That speaks of chastening, to cleanse it that it may bear more fruit. Already ye are clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. The people that think they're kind of Christians, they don't abide in Christ. They don't abide in God. They're happy just abiding in themselves and abiding in their sin. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, so neither can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same beareth much fruit, for apart from me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, if a man doesn't believe on me as his Lord, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and cast them into the fire. And they are burned. Doesn't say anything about going to heaven. It doesn't say anything about gifts for, for uh, trying or anything. They haven't borne any fruit. They're withered. They're dry. Despicable branches that are worthy of nothing but to be cast into the fire and burned. I didn't read what this individual would have had to say about this. But I expect he would have brought forth another lie. Because his primary purpose is to keep those hundreds of thousands turning their TVs on to watch him. 
coming to, to the, church, the building that he calls a church to listen to him and to shovel hordes of money into his coffers. If you are a true part of the vine, that means you have life in he who is the true vine. You have true life through the true vine. You will indeed be bearing fruit unto eternal life. It doesn't say how beautiful the fruit, how plentiful the fruit, but you will be bearing fruit. You won't be dry and withered and bearing no fruit at all. If you are part of the true vine, you will be bearing true fruit under true eternal life. If you are not part of the vine, you'll be cast into the outer darkness. That's the teaching of scripture. There is a man I met. I was actually taken to a, a, the University of Michigan. I'm not bragging about that, but I'm just saying that I was taken to a, one of the groups there was having this man by the name of J.I. Packer as a speaker. That was the first time I ever saw him in, in the flesh. The last time, too. He's still with us, at least according to Google. He's still with us. He's 92 years old. And I was at that gathering, sitting under his teaching, and uh, I had just come to Christ a year or two later, or before I came to that meeting. And I enjoyed his teaching, even though I didn't know who he was. I heard him some more later. But he himself says when scripture speaks of regeneration, which it represents as a new birth, a quickening of the dead, what is in view is an inner transformation of one's being or heart. It's a new heart, which makes it impossible for one to go on living under sin's sway as one lived before. Yes, there'll still be fighting against sin, but you don't live under its sway, is what Packer is saying. The effect of regeneration is that now one wants from the bottom of one's heart to know, because it's a new heart, to know, love, serve, trust, obey, and honor the Father and the Son, so that obedient devotion and discipleship spontaneously spring up where there was only resentful hostility to God before. The account given us of these defenders of the carnal Christian theory, their account of Christian discipleship as a, as a prudent and fulfilling, though not necessary, option, Packer goes on to say, shows that he does not understand this at all. In particular, he does not see that the faith that justifies only appears as an expression of the regenerate heart. It's a work of God. It's a work of God. But if I have seemed harsh today, bringing this diabolical teaching before you, I want to read just a couple more lines that impressed me because J.I. Packer is speaking of himself, but he was speaking of me. He says, the pastoral effect of this teaching 
that is the carnal Christian teaching, can only be to produce what the Puritans called gospel hypocrites. Persons who have been told that they are Christians, eternally secure because they believe that Christ died for them, when their hearts, in fact, are unchanged and they have no personal commitment to Christ at all. I know this, for I was such, just such a gospel hypocrite for two years before God mercifully made me aware of my unconverted state. Packer says, if I seem harsh in my critique of the carnal Christian theory of this redefinition of faith as a barren intellectual formalism, you must remember that once I almost lost my soul through assuming what, the, what this teaching was, was true. And a burned child always therefore dreads the fire. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy so great salvation. We thank thee for our Lord Jesus Christ who set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him, but out of that great love wherewith he loved us, he set his face steadfastly toward that end, that design, to satisfy thy justice which was against his people. Father, we thank thee for the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even while we were sinners, he died for us. May we live unto him, we pray, through Jesus Christ in his name. Amen. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction, it's from 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2.16. <clears throat> now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.